welcome to You're Wrong About. I'm Sarah Marshall. Welcome to Go Ask Alice Endgame. With me today is our friend Carmen Maria Machado, and with us also is super secret guest Rick Emerson, the author of Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the imposter behind the world's most notorious diaries. If you want to hear some bonus episodes from You're Wrong About, you can go to patreon.com slash you're wrong about and hear them there. You can hear them on Apple subscriptions, or you can go see one fifth of Maverick. Okay, it's time for the conclusion to our story. I hope you enjoy it. I hope that solving mysteries always makes you feel like there are just 100 more mysteries out there for you. Welcome to You're Wrong About, the podcast for sadistic switch hitters <laughs> and those who love them. With me today is Carmen Maria Machado and our secret, exciting mystery guest, stepping out from behind the crushed velvet curtain, Rick Emerson, author of Unmask Alice. Hello, Carmen. Hello, Rick. Hello. Howdy, howdy. Hi. So, Rick... <laughs> Tell us about your book. I bet it has a subtitle. The subtitle, because all books now must have subtitles that are, you know, four dozen words long. Mm -hmm. The full title of the book is Unmask Alice, LSD, Satanic Panic, and the Imposter Behind the World's Most Notorious Diaries. Can I just say, here are my three favorite things. LSD, the Satanic Panic, and Imposters. That's it. That's mm -hmm. all I want. Have I got the book for you? <laughs> <laughs> And I feel like this book is about like many slices of American history. It's like this cross section of mid 20th century America or mid to late, really, that we get by following the Go Ask Alice story. It's like a long, thin slice of pork belly. If you follow Go Ask Alice, you're, it's going to take you through several decades of American history, several you know moral panics and quasi social breakdowns and a whole cast of just unbelievable characters and events, all of which are all the more astounding for really existing and having happened. Yes. So here's what I'm going to do. Carmen Marie Machado, noted public intellectual, brilliant author who I forced to read trash with me because you're a <laughs> Philadelphia trash raccoon, <laughs> just like me. I'm going to ask an opening question and then I, I want you to mm -hmm. try and get as many questions as you can answered. Fantastic. So... First question, is this book a true story written by a real teenage girl who really died? Well, I mean, it really is, if nothing else, intentional or not, it's one of the most brilliant marketing moves, certainly in literature and certainly in young adult literature. It's sort of like that prize in the box of Cracker Jacks, which is like, well, how can you get kids of every era, no matter what else is on offer, to pay you know, 5,000% markup for what is basically stale caramel corn. It's like, well, you'll put a prize in there, but they won't know what it is until it'll, it'll be a mystery. Huh. And it's almost two questions in one, because on the one hand, it's, is this book real? Is the diary authentic? And then there's a secondary question, which is, well, leaving aside the issue of the diary's authenticity, did this girl, did Alice really exist? Leaving aside the question of Alice's authenticity, whole chunks of the diary, go ask Alice, of the book are just undeniably false. There's just no way around that. There's a lot of the stuff that probably a lot of people noticed on the first reading that it took me many, many readings to eventually catch on to. Like, you guys did a great job of talking about this in the last episode, this sort of reverse drug escalation that she goes on, <laughs> yeah. where she starts with LSD, and then by the end is basically just shooting morphine into her eyeballs, and then finally says, now I should try this marijuana that the kids seem to be all about. I mean, it probably rang false to a lot of people at the beginning. It took me a while to catch on to that. Or the fact that the diary is not even really consistent with itself. So, for example, mm -hmm. at the beginning, there's this editor's note that says, uh, you know, names, dates, places and certain events have been changed in accordance with the wishes of those involved which is both overwritten and hard to deconstruct, but which essentially means we've changed some things for privacy. And yet there are all of these names that are just redacted when you could have changed them. So there's a, an example where she says, well, I met Fawn Blank at the store today. And it's like, well, hang on. Are we redacting names or are we changing names? And if we're doing one, why are we doing the other? Mm -hmm. So there's that. Leaving that aside, the timeline just doesn't work. Even if you make allowances for changing the dates and some of the events for privacy, there is just no practical way that certain things line up with reality. So Beatrice Sparks, who 
presented herself as the editor of this book. She was consistently inconsistent about a lot of things, her books, her background, her education, her training, and that extends to Go Ask Alice. You know, sometimes there was one diary, sometimes there was two, sometimes Alice died three weeks later, sometimes Alice died six months later. It seemed to change depending on what day she told the story. But there was one thing that was fairly solid when she told this backstory. It was that she met Alice, the real Alice, at a Christian youth conference in the summer of 1970. So for reasons I get into in the book, that immediately gives us a six-week window. She had to have met Alice between June 15th and July 31st, and that in and of itself essentially dismantles the entire timeline. For starters, the diary doesn't mention a Christian youth camp or anything remotely resembling that, much less her parents letting her travel again. It's like, well, you've just had this psychotic break, and most of your hair is missing, and you know you're covered in gouges. Have fun. And your fingers are like hamburger or whatever. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, also, every time you leave the house, you seem to run away or end up with the worst people imaginable. So good day to you. Just enjoy your trip to, you know, the Christian Youth Conference. Butterflies are free. (laughs) I've been to Christian Youth Conferences. Some stuff happens there. So, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So it doesn't really scan, as they say. Even if you assume that the meltdown happened after Mm-hmm. The Christian youth camp. In other words, so Beatrice Sparks meets the real Alice at a Christian youth camp and then the meltdown happens sometimes later. That also doesn't work because it doesn't leave time for everything that followed, including, you know, a month in the hospital. And at one point she makes a reference to so the only reference that Alice herself makes to anything happening at because this this Christian youth camp was supposedly at a college campus. The only reference to that that Alice actually makes is when she talks about perhaps taking summer classes at the local college the following year. Hmm. So, you know, the timeline just doesn't work, which is something that happens again and again in the other eight diaries that Beatrice Sparks somehow discovered. Found. Just under a manhole. <laughs> just, the thing about troubled, dead teenagers' diaries is that you can find them just all over the place, just on bus stops and in the bookstore and at the supermarket. It does seem to be the case that people who find one miraculous thing then just keep finding miraculous things. Right? Like fossils? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> on a more basic level, some of the language just points to a problem. You know, there are certain phrases mm-hmm. in Go Ask Alice that repeat word for word nearly in later books. So at one point, Alice is talking about a girl named Doris. And she says, well, since then, she's hopped into bed with anybody who would turn down the covers. A lot of maids. <laughs> <laughs> and in, in Beatrice Park says, next book, a character says, let's see, I wrote this down. A character talks about hopping from bed to bed with anyone who would mm-hmm. turn down the covers. So it's very nearly the same mm-hmm. phrase. In Go Ask Alice, there's a May entry where Alice says, it's a good thing most people bleed on the inside or this would really be a gory blood smeared earth. In Sparks' next book, a character says, Depression only makes you bleed on the inside. Maybe that's a good thing because it would be a pretty slippery, red, gory, bloody world. Oh, my God. So this happens throughout her writing slash editing career. There's actually one phrase. The phrase is, bad thoughts are like birds. You can't keep them from flying overhead, but you can keep them from making nests in your hair, which I think we can all agree is sage advice. No, you can't. It's actually such sage advice that that phrase turns up in three different diaries edited by Beatrice Sparks in almost exactly the same wording. I don't want to get too snarky about this right out of the gate, but I will say that we'll get too snarky later because <laughs> this is, you know, on some level, a kind of horrific story. There's a lot yeah. of really unpleasant aspects to this, so I didn't want to be too cavalier about it. But I did in an early draft. I had this Beatrice Sparks drinking game. That <laughs> Please share it. Well, so this part is germane to our conversation right here because one of the rules was drink every time someone slaps Ness, N-E-S-S, on the end of a word where it doesn't belong. Oh, that's so much drinking. Yeah. So I can go ask Alice just blondness, exoticness, delectableness. One of her later books has, you know, absoluteness, amazingness. I believe there's a point in one of her later books where a character talks about Idaho might be Montana, but I think it's Idaho. And he says, I just can't wait to see the rollingness of Idaho. <laughs> so just these two areas. That's great. Like the language overlaps and the timeline kind of negate the idea that we're dealing with, you know, an untrammeled diary. What if it's a Dalai Lama type situation and the same team keeps being born again and again into new bodies? We don't know. Well, this is just so funny to me because, you know, as like a writer, I think a lot about like 
you know how if you read all of my stuff, you'd be like, oh, like, here are all Carmen's bad habits, like they appear or whatever, or ticks or like, you know, linguistic <laughs> tendencies. Like you're just going to, you're going to, this is how you know, right? It's like you can look at the text and be like, oh, she does this kind of over and over again, which is like normal for a writer to do. It's just funny to imagine it when like the one time it's like actually kind of a serious problem is when you're allegedly editing a bunch of different texts by different people and they just all are like in the exactly the same pro style. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean... <laughs> Somebody, uh, this is years ago, this is like a mid-90s reference, but I, a guy I used to live with, he's talking about it, whatever the new Kevin Smith film was at that point. And he said, he said, you know, it's like this movie's amusing and all, but he said the problem is all these characters are just Kevin Smith with a thesaurus. Mm. And <laughs> there's a little bit of that dynamic that happens here too. That's yeah. true. Which is often quite enjoyable, but you know. Yeah. I guess the moral is that like, if you're going to pretend to have found diaries by multiple teens, maybe you have to be more creative, you know, than that. Or not, possibly. Or just don't don't do it, right? right. (laughs) That's the other option. And most of us are are not doing that. So good job, everybody. It also doesn't seem to have been much of a uh, of a hurdle for agents, editors, publishers, journalists, or most of the people who were responsible for getting these books into, you know, because it's not a one-person operation. It, this is, you know, not a self-publishing right. gig. So there were a lot of people who looked and like, good enough, mm-hmm. stamp, and just send it on out. There's so many interesting questions in that part of the equation, because, yeah, of course, it takes a whole team of people to bring a book into the world. But, Carmen, I, I want to turn it over to you, because I'm curious myself about, like, what your most burning questions are, having just finished our fascinated journey through the dark ride of this journal. I guess it's a real question of what was the path to publication of this book? Like, were they like, ah, yes, a teenager's diary? Or were they all just sort of like, "Eh," you know, it's like as a teen, it felt realistic. As an adult human, I'm reading it being like, this is so obviously not real. Like, were people having those thoughts in whatever, what was yours published? 72? 71. September 71. 71. Okay, yeah. Like, in 71, were people like, this is bullshit? Or did people buy it? Like, what was the publication process like, if we know? And, like, were people just like, yeah, this seems real? Or were they just, like, you know, doing that cynical publishing thing of just, like, yeah, pushing it along? Well, So, it's interesting. If you go on Amazon, I mean, the last time I checked, uh, it was, like, two or three days ago, I went on Amazon and I was checking just to see, you know, Alice's stats. Because you can see not only where it's selling overall, but you can see what categories it's selling best in. Oh, sure. Mm -hmm, You know, so mm -hmm. it's overall number 160,000 of whatever of all the books they sell. But then Amazon has a book category called... Young people, adults, facts of life, and then the subcategory is drug and alcohol abuse. And I think Go Ask Alice, as of this week, was number three in that category in terms of current sellers. So helpful. Such a helpful book. What I love about it is that it gives so much real world advice for how to deal with addiction as a teenager, which is that you're just going to fucking die no matter what you do. And that's not a cumulative sales figure. That's the real time as of this week sales figure. And if you look at the reviews of Go Ask Alice right now, there's certainly no uniformity of opinion in terms of is this real? Is this not? I would say that. So working backward, I would say that right now, you know, there's about a 50 50 split in terms of just the general public and how they view it. Maybe 60 40 in terms of it being a hoax or being anti drug propaganda. If you go back to when it was released, it was absolutely viewed, I mean, almost across the board as being absolutely authentic. I mean, there were a few outliers, really? but the outliers really were the exception that proved the rule. I would say 90% of media reviews, in other words, people who are reviewing this either in a newspaper or a magazine or on television, treated it as absolutely authentic. And to some degree, that becomes, I think it's a self-perpetuating thing because, you know, there was three networks, four if you count a PBS there was you know, two news weeklies and then there was whatever your local paper was, but your local paper also pulled a lot of things from the New York Times and from the Associated Press and UPI. So there were a lot of outlets, but very few main channels feeding those outlets. Mm-hmm. So conventional wisdom solidified pretty quickly and also just on a more basic level, not to be too sweepingly historic about this, but, you know, it was pre so many of the things that I think calcified the idea of media and government and especially government and media together lying to you. Hmm. I mean, it was pre-Watergate. It was pre so many of these scandals and before so much of the worst cover-ups about things like Vietnam had come out. And even now, if you talk to people about Go Ask Alice or any book like this, you know, one of the things they will say, I mean, my mother actually said this and my mother is nobody's fool, but she said, you know, 
I thought they couldn't say it if it wasn't true. Yeah. It says mm-hmm. real. How could they say that if it's not real? That's truly what I believed about books as a kid. Yeah, that really brings me yeah. back to that. And I really, it's funny because I'm so disabused of that now. And I spend so much time thinking about hoax nonfiction. But like, yeah, I believed and I believed that books had the power to just have truth in them almost all of the time. I mean, one of the things I think people don't realize is how flimsy publishing's apparatus is, and I guess always has been mm. for ensuring truth. Because my understanding now is that if you write a nonfiction book, you basically have to have it independently fact-checked. Like your publisher doesn't provide a fact-checker, Absolutely. which is incredible to me. Like, that's unbelievable. It is one of the things. So I have a chapter called Don't Believe the Truth, which is all about this sort of thing. Because going into this, I mean, I had you know, some knowledge. I mean, I'd written a book before, but it was definitely different than this. And I'm certainly not a publishing veteran. So I still had a lot of ideas about, you know, again, it's Mm -hmm. the, well, there must be somebody somewhere who looks at this and says, no, 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 this has to be labeled blank, or this fails the test to be labeled nonfiction or memoir or whatever. But the thing I learned is that, you know, in the United States, you know, where most products, nearly anything you buy, I mean, advertising can be somewhat deceptive and it can be somewhat misleading. But when you go buy a can of soup, you know, I'm not saying there are no bad actors out there, but when you buy a can of soup, essentially that can of soup has to tell you what's really in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, now sometimes they'll mask it with sort of, you know, made up verbiage or they'll have like some gigantic long chemical name that you don't really understand. It's just horse hooves or it's, you know, it's like when you buy a Twinkie and it says cellulose fiber and you're like, is how is that different from sawdust? You know, but <laughs> essentially the product has to tell you what it contains. And books are a towering exception because the publishing industry essentially runs on an honor system. And the thing about honor systems yeah. is, Honor systems only govern people who don't need it. Mm. I mean, if you're going to follow an honor system, guess what? You don't need the honor system. Mm. And there's also just the economics of it, which is that the publishing Mm. industry has always run on really thin margins, especially now. And so when you write a book and you submit a book, I actually talked to one of her editors later in her career, and it took me quite a long time to get her to finally just flat out say like she was her own fact checker. I mean, that's just how we go with things. Mm. And so mm-hmm. when people wonder, how does this keep happening? How do memoirs keep coming out and then they turn out to be mostly or completely fabricated? That's why. It's because there's no regulation and no apparatus in place to control it. And there's not much motive because it doesn't seem to have much impact. Yeah, it's like, why do we keep having white collar crime? It's like, well, because nobody gets punished for it. And when they do... And it's the same with publishing where like occasionally there will be a famous hoax memoir and you have to go get scolded by Oprah. But it happens so rarely and so relatively meaninglessly that like, who cares? And even in that case, so in the case of James Fry and A Million Little Pieces, which is probably the case that people know the most, Mm -hmm. if you look at the proportionality of that scolding, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to... um, exonerate or exempt James Fry from this because he's Mm -hmm. the one who wrote it and turned it in and said, you know, but by all accounts, first of all, he submitted it as a novel to begin with. Right. And so he said, hey, here's this thing. Here's this thing that kind of draws my life, but is basically fiction. And they're like, fiction. Why are the paragraphs so short? God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) I did not know this. This is this is news to me. I mean, I I knew that it was like a hoax, but I didn't realize that they had submitted it as fiction. And what is the publisher like pressured him into just like. So uh, starting around 1991, with the novel uh, or with the uh, with the memoir actually Angela's Ashes by Frank McCourt that is when the memoir explosion I mean the if you look yeah. at a pie chart of publishing memoirs really really over the last 30 years have become an increasingly large part it's just become whether it's a phase or a trend or just a natural direction of the way the publishing goes memoirs really started selling like gangbusters. And so they were like, you know, uh, you know what people love? They love those memoirs. What are we just uh, novel? No. How about a memoir by James Fry? So if you look at what happened there, James Fry submitted this book, but there's a long list of people as with Go Ask Alice who had to sign off on, I mean, a book passes through dozens of hands between the time somebody turns it in and the time it hits the shelves. And he received a lot of that scolding. His editor, Nantalise got some of it, although she was, decidedly unrepentant about the entire thing but there was essentially no blowback for his publisher and Mm. in other words james fry took the brunt of that punishment and i can't really disagree with that at the same Mm -hmm. time the people who are ultimately responsible for putting it on the shelves are the ones 
you know, because the public doesn't, you know, when I go to buy a book, I don't really care who the publisher is for the most part. It doesn't really matter to me. So the author is the one who kind of gets tagged with that. The likelihood of an author doing that twice or three times in a row is pretty low. The likelihood of a publisher doing it again is really high. And so we're holding the wrong people accountable. I have so many feelings that I cannot say on this podcast about like (laughs) publishing, acting badly and like authors taking the brunt Mm. of the punishment. Not even, I mean, in the case of things like, you know, James Frey, et cetera, et cetera, but also like. I feel like I've seen it with other situations as well where like, yeah, publishers kind of like skirt by and just like do it again and again and again. And like, yeah, certain authors just get like burned so bad they just are never heard from again or whatever, you know. So this is this is not surprising to me at all. And publishers are usually indemnified by contract as well. You know, it's usually in Hmm. the deal, in the paperwork between an author and a publisher. I mean, the publisher essentially says like, hey, if it turns out that this is a hoax, like it's all on you. It is like white collar crime. It's like, oh, it's interesting that this trader at this famously cutthroat hedge fund decided to like indulge in some corporate espionage. I wonder why he did that. And it's like, well, for his boss and for money and to not get fired. That's why. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Well, then, okay. so then my follow up question to that is like, has Beatrice Sparks ever like admitted to this being a hoax? I'm assuming not. Right. Or like, what is her really? I mean, is she also is she alive? I don't even know. She is. She is no longer with us. Okay. Okay. And has she ever like admitted to it, said anything publicly about it? Sort of the opposite. And when I say sort of, I mean decidedly the opposite. Just like dug in and didn't move. Well, as we've learned. Like a tortoise. I mean, I try not to be a person who just ties everything back to the event of the last six years. But. Hard not to. As I think we have learned again and again. I mean, as the author Max Brooks once said, you know, Americans are great at not learning lessons. And. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But in the last few years, we've seen that just strategically speaking, just in terms of pure tactics, the best approach is just never apologize, never explain, and just double down, because that seems to work. And I feel like there's this sort of villainous Malcolm McLaren version of me in some alternate reality where I'm like a crisis manager for people that have just been caught lying about things. Because, you know, for example, I, you know, I remember when Lance Armstrong finally copped to, you know, blood doping or whatever it was he was doing. And he was sort of, mm-hmm. and he finally went on Oprah. And, and, you know, I remember watching that and just thinking, like, you are such a fool, because it's like 20% of this country thinks we never went to the moon. <laughs> And, you know, people are like, well, the science proves it. I'm like, look around this country. Does it seem like we're a group of people that really like embrace science wholeheartedly? So if he had just stuck to his guns, there would have been some core of people that never would have abandoned Lance Armstrong, mm. especially against the French. Mm. I mean, oh, let's yeah. be honest. I mean, there's some section of America that would have been like, I'm not trusting the French. I'll trust this guy. Right, right. We hate the French. <laughs> we're going to eat craft singles until the day we die. So she, as time went on, really just became more and more invested in this. And I should say for the record, you know, I'm not trying to diagnose anybody, but it does seem like it might have been Aristotle who said the thing about, you know, what you pretend to be, you will eventually become. So you have to choose your mask Mm -hmm. wisely. Mm -hmm. And if you tell that story Mm. of meeting Alice at a Christian youth camp and then she tragically dies and you get this diary and it's on scraps of paper and the backs of grocery bags or whatever. It's Carmen's favorite part. That is my favorite part, honestly. (laughs) If you tell that story again and again, and especially if the New York Times embraces it and repeats it as as gospel, Mm -hmm. you know, after a while, that starts to be a thing that sounds real even to yourself. And so I guess that's a long way of saying Mm -hmm. that, no, it really was quite the opposite that she sort of dug in further on that. So then I guess my next question, and again, I'm I'm so excited for this book. When Sarah told me that you were the secret guest and that you'd read this whole book, I got so excited because (laughs) there's nothing more that I love than like a big specific book about like a weird thing that I'm obsessed with. So I'm just like, I'm very excited for this book, by the way. So glad to hear that. (laughs) I guess I'm also sort of wondering just reading it with a critical eye I feel like it's pretty easy to discern like moments where you can tell that there's like something since it's all it's all allegedly real so like it's reflecting something interesting about the author who is again like not this young girl but like I kept thinking okay so the drug stuff like she's clearly never done a drug in her life has no sense of like the inner workings of like drug culture or anything like right and that seems pretty obvious to me but I was shocked by the amount of, like, gay stuff in this book and, like, not just the, like, homosexuality is shortcut to Satanism, like, homophobic gay panic stuff, but, like, actual moments of, like, 
same-sex attraction that was clearly confusing and complicate like complicating her life and like was confusing her and we both just kept i feel like the whole time we've been like doing this podcast sarah and i like we just kept every moment we're just like gay 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 like there's so much gay stuff in this book so yeah like do we know like what beatrice's relationship with gayness was like was she queer do we know like i just feel like there's i mean and maybe we don't i don't know anyway so that was that's my like big question honestly well and that is it is a distressingly common theme in the books that she depending on one's view uh, you know Uh, wrote or edited i mean that does that is one of the many sort of horrible threads that runs throughout her catalog you know this is where knowing about Beatrice Sparks really does help bring some things into focus because even more than most Christian faiths, you know, Latter-day Saints hmm. do really seem to have a conflicted and, you know, complicated fixation on sex. You know, the church, hmm. full name, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which most people call Mormons or in Utah, actually, the common term is LDS. But as I say, at one point, I mentioned LSD like 5,000 times in this book. So that seems like a recipe for hilarious confusion. <laughs> but the church teaches that, and I, I have this quote here because this is a thing that they say repeatedly. The church teaches that sexual purity is youth's most precious possession. And this is the part that you can lay a lot of trouble at the church's doorstep for this, that a young person is, quote, better dead and clean than alive and unclean. And that's not just premarital sex. I mean, that's obviously same sex yeah. activity. That is Fuck. even oh, masturbation. Oh and, you know, yeah. one of the ways that, and I talk about this uh, in a later section of the book, one of the ways they reinforce this, you know, purity is something called a worthiness interview. And I, I want to say for the record, I'm not singling out Latter-day Saints just out of malice. I mean, it's just this book is rooted in... Utah County to a large part and, and Utah and in that culture. Mm-hmm. So that hence the focus, but they do this thing called a worthiness interview, which is something that's required to take part in temple activities. And in a worthiness interview, you go sit in a room with your local bishop and it's a one on one thing, just you and him. And it's of course always a him. And he asks a lot of really detailed, awkward questions about your life and your behavior. You know, things like, do you tithe properly and do you avoid caffeinated beverages, et cetera? But a lot of times that includes sexual questions like whether you masturbate and what you do well when was the last time and what were you thinking about and have you become unchaste with someone have you engaged in sexual activity and if you say yes it's like well so i know someone who went to a worthiness interview and of course it's you know you're raised to think this person is speaking to you for god and you know essentially interrogating you on behalf of god and it was well have you have you you know have you engaged in heavy petting or whatever he called it and she said well yes i have and then his next question was, well, what kind of underwear were you wearing? And now I'm not saying that type, of, that type of question happens every time, but that's the point is that bishops have broad latitude in what they ask, how they ask it, how detailed those questions are. So my point is that there's simultaneously this fixation on sex and yet this depiction of sex, especially sexual sin, is something that can literally be mm. worse than death. Yeah. And there's another layer to this, which is that The church, and they don't talk about this a lot because it kind of makes non-believers sort of roll their eyes, but the church teaches that Satan is essentially always trying to take control of your body. One of the teachings is that he's a spirit who doesn't have his own temporal form, and so he is always trying to sort of Hmm. hop into you like a kind of bipedal taxi. (laughs) Like Glory on season five of Buffy. (laughs) Yes, exactly. But he's always trying to take control of your mind and your actions, and that Satan controlling your mind and your body is the cause not just of sin, but the cause of a lot of physical ailments and or mental and emotional ailments. And so if you then zoom out and you look at the nine teenage diaries that Beatrice Barks produced, there's a lot of recurring elements, but more than sex, more than drug abuse, you know, more than anything else. These teenage diarists seem to be haunted by this specter of mental Mm. illness, you know, a mental upset, tumult. And it comes in a lot of forms, but it's always there. And if you come from a culture where sin, especially sexual sin, is not just worse than dying, but is paired with mental illness as something caused by the devil, then you're going to be hyper vigilant about Mm. it. And that's a very long way of saying that whether we're talking about a girl named Alice or whether we're talking about a woman named Beatrice, I'm not saying she was crazy. And I'm not saying she was secretly gay, but it would make a horrible, strange kind of sense for her to fixate on one or both of those possibilities. Got it. Mm. Interesting. 
Oh, Beatrice. I know. Because like she's not explicitly Mormon. I mean, Alice is not Mormon. Is she in the book? Do we ever? Because right, there's no real. Like, I'm not now. I'm like thinking back to the. I feel like there's a part where she's like naming lack of religion as one of the incipient problems in her life because she has her first friend who she's obsessed with who's Jewish and then oh, she's right. like I wish I knew about our family's religious traditions but I don't even know okay bye right it's not as explicit in Go Ask Alice as it becomes in some of her later books there are some signifiers in there you know so at one point I mean she does talk hmm. about visiting the Great Salt Lake right, right. which as I believe Carmen mentioned is a hideous place that looks beautiful <laughs> until you get out of the car <laughs> And then you're just like, why am I here? I got so many messages on Instagram, people being like, yes, the Great Salt Lake is disgusting. <laughs> it just, it smells like a sewer and it's covered in brine flies and it's, I yeah, mean, exactly. it's awful. Exactly. Um, <laughs> you know, but there are some references there to what we might broadly call mm-hmm. Mormon culture. And there are some things that are not there that become more apparent in later books. But it is also worth noting that, you know, one other recurring element in these teenage diaries so Beth Baum, which is so that's the, the girl that Alice, you know, gets this sort of crush on or, or however she would describe it. You know, is it possible I'm in love with Beth horrors, you know, right. whatever she says. <laughs> there are a lot of Jewish characters that show up in these teenage diaries. And so Jewish culture plays a big role. And the reason that is mm. kind of significant is because in Mormon culture, they really view themselves as having this very strong connection they view themselves as essentially being one of the other, you know, lost tribes, one of the other tribes that has been, you know, mm. that is in North America. In fact, so much so that, you know, within Utah itself, the nickname for Utah is Zion. That's what they call it in Utah. So mm. they very much perceive this interwoven aspect between Judaism and Latter-day Saint culture. So there's that's another connective thread. Sparks herself in multiple interviews explicitly said that Alice was, you know, Mormon or that she met her at a, you know, sometimes she says Christian youth conference, sometimes she says Mormon, but mm-hmm. that's the thing that, oh, okay. you know, mm-hmm. it's there if you're looking for it. Interesting. Mm. So what do we know about Beatrice? Like, do we know much like about like who she was as a person? Like, do we have any like biographical insight into her in any way? Or is she sort of like a little bit of a black box? The way that I sort of describe her is that I sometimes say she's not just the unreliable narrator of other people's lives. She's the unreliable narrator of her own life. Oh, interesting. I will say at the outset that it's so. Well, first of all, this book took me far longer than I expected to write. I mean, I think part of that is my instant karma. I think the universe is teaching me humility because my first book went from idea to published in like 19 months. I was like, this is easy. Oh, my God. Who are these people who take seven years? What are they, slackers? Oh, yeah. You're definitely getting punished. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And so, so when I started this book, the universe is like, all right, jackass, how about we punish you for your overconfidence? So the thing about writing about anybody who is, you know, an unreliable source is nothing can be taken at face value. I mean, everything has to be. When I interviewed one of her children, his opening line to me was, nobody knows her story, including me. And so part of that, I think, is generational in the sense that and I think there was definitely an undersharing or anti-sharing aspect to people who grew up, you know, in the Great Depression, especially because a, you know, a lot of times people and and Beatrice Parks included lived through an era that was just objectively terrible in many ways, you know, and not just because things had not evolved socially to the, you know, in, I mean, it was obviously a much different era, you know, in a lot of ways, but also there was the great depression and then there was a world war and then another world war. And it was just a whole lot of things people wanted to forget. And I think there was very much an element of like, Mm. that's in the past. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to talk about it. I'm looking at the future. And now this is me sort of just speculating slash diagnosing, but there's a weird great Gatsby element in the sense that, you know, there's this American idea of, Mm you know, self-invention and recreation, you know, you can, a thing that we obviously know is not true, but that we are still told and that we on some level all want to believe, which is the idea that in America, it doesn't matter who you are or where you're born or whether you're rich or poor, you know, you can become whatever you want. And the phrase there is become. We in America tend to really lionize reward or even worship success. At the same time, you know, we tend to gloss over a lot of the self-reinvention, which is sometimes another word for deceit that goes into that. You know, we tend to value a lot of things, but, you know, we don't want to know how that sausage is made. And so to some degree, there was a lot of, you know, I'm going to pretend to be the person I want to be, and I'm going to pretend to be that person until I become that person. Mm -hmm. It took quite a long time to unravel 
her life and her background. And I'm sure that there are things that are probably not known to anybody. And a lot of that seemed to be by design. And so, you know, if you are unhappy with who you are and you're desperate to become somebody else, you're probably not going to be forthcoming about a lot of that. What do we know? Like, are there indisputable biographical facts? Yeah, uh, she was born in Logan, Utah, which is now and was even more so then a very small, very, very, very Mormon place. I mean, even contrasted with the rest of Utah. When she was in her teens, she moved. I mean, you want to talk about a culture shock. So she moved from Logan, Utah to San Francisco. San Francisco, California. Oh, this makes this makes a little bit of the book make a little more sense. That's very interesting. Well, another if you want to do another Beatrice Sparks drinking game and you drink or, you know, have, you know, some jello or whatever it is you want to do every time a character mentions or goes to San Francisco. (laughs) That seems to be a thing that turns up quite frequently. And San Francisco in the mid to late 30s was I mean, it's obviously you know, kind of a tumultuous, chaotic city, you know, at all times, but especially then, because it was just, in addition to the actual real literal earthquakes, there was a lot of social upheaval happening in San Francisco at that Mm. moment. And Mm. so it is hard to imagine actually like a greater contrast going from tiny town Utah to San Francisco. I mean, I cannot even imagine even going to someplace like Manhattan or Las Vegas, I think would not be quite the same. Then by... The mid-60s, she's back in Utah. She's married. She has a family. And she moves to a place that is uh, often called the fraud capital of America, which is <laughs> Utah County, which effectively means you know, Provo. Provo is the heart of that. So just a couple of miles from BYU. Is that why those twins are from Provo and Ocean's Eleven? <laughs> but like this idea that it's like the designated American capital of con artists? At one point, I don't have the uh, stat in front of me here, but I have to do it from memory, but I think this is true. At one point, I believe the, um, so I guess it would be the FTC that did this investigation, I think. I believe at one point they estimated that something like, and I think the number was literally two thirds, that two thirds of investment in securities fraud had traced to Utah County in some way, that it was in some way based there. What? (laughs) If you want to do a real life drinking game, actually, you can just drink every time you find a multi-level marketing company that is based in Provo or Utah or that has very strong roots there. So Unique, for example, the makeup company, they're the most recent example that I can think of. But multi-level marketing stuff is gigantic. It is enormous in Utah County, which tells you a lot. I feel like now we're like really on a thread and we're super off topic, but I'm just I'm like, is the multi-level marketing thing because Mormon women are supposed to be at home? I don't like I feel like like, is that or is it like is there some other connection? Is it like Delaware where the laws are weird? That's a good question. I, I can really only speculate on that. I mean, I think it's probably a mix of things, a confluence of factors. But I would say off the top of my head, I think the idea that. And again, I do apologize to anybody who feels like I am perhaps picking on their faith. I'm really not. But that just happens to be what we're talking about. So, I mean, on the one hand, again, you've got this strange dichotomy where the church, I mean, it's a prosperity faith in many ways. You know, and there's some rational underpinning to that, that they, I mean, to be fair, Mormons were undoubtedly, undeniably, you know, persecuted for a long time. I mean, at one point, I believe it was Illinois, actually, the governor signed a thing called the Mormon Extinction Order with an executive order signed by the governor saying, like, we need to exterminate Mormons. And so there is like a well-founded, to some degree, sense of solidarity against the outside world and self-reliance. The idea that like we need to have our own money and our own economy, you know, because things might go south for us again. Mm -hmm. At the same time, women are not exactly encouraged to be independent or to work outside the home or to do anything that takes them away from raising the family and so forth. And if you can, in theory, make money you know, pushing cosmetics to your friends on Facebook or whatever that, you know, that's splitting the difference, you know, for some people, I think also Mormons are, again, according to a government report that I have a copy of somewhere, Mormons are especially ripe for what they call affinity fraud. And affinity fraud just means that mm. you're likely to believe the claims of somebody who's in your same social group. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Cause most people, like a lot of secular people, kind of suburban moms in America, I guess like don't have a social group and that's one of the big problems they face so that that's depressing and if you are predisposed to just you know somebody in your church says hey so uh you know so i've been i've been making some money i I don't know why i always become this anonymous guy from i've been selling this lularoe pretty (laughs) good product yeah it's you know and and it's you know the same sort of uh we'll strike up a conversation at a 
barbecue or something and say like, yeah, so I've been really, uh, this is working out really well for me. Yeah. I might be able to, might be able to go into business for myself. You know, Sarah, you seem like a, a real go-getter, a person who really, you know, really wants to oh make Oh my some, goodness, I am. You know, so, I mean, I, you know, I can't, no problem. I, I could maybe bring you in on this. I mean, if it's something you're interested in, I could talk to, I mean, it's, nice. you know, people are, there's a long line. Create a sense of urgency. Yeah. But <laughs> if you're really, I mean, if you're really willing to give it a hundred percent, I can make a few calls for you. You just, you know. I love giving a hundred percent. Carmen and I also <laughs> were very charmed by the section of the book where inexplicable our girls Alice and Chris start a small business yep. that is very much part of in my experience at least that is very part of the Latter-day Saint culture it's you know the hmm. idea of business acumen self-reliance this makes more sense in this context yeah and it tracks also with how that church operates in terms of their COVID has impacted this obviously but in terms of their outreach because and I say this with, I'm not passing any judgment, but really, you know, missionary work is sales work and sales work is missionary work. And if you're good at one, you're going to be good at the other. Mm. So then my next question would be, I feel like my final question is going to be like, is Alice real or like, was there a real Alice? But before that, I also wanted you to speak a little more broadly to like the role this book served in the culture of the moment it came out in. So obviously, like in the subtitle of the book, you mentioned the satanic panic. Obviously, there's like a drug, you know, moral panic happening and like a sort of a way that America is responding to drugs and to mental health. And there's like all these. So, yeah. And like also, I mean, at some point she's in an asylum, which like I mentioned during our last episode, I was like, when did asylums get like shut down in the US? But like it was a moment where like you would you could end up in like this situation. Freak wharf, if you will. A freak wharf. Exactly. (laughs) So like, yeah, where does this book like where did this book sort of land culturally? And like what was sort of the impact of that in the moment that it came out? I was listening uh, again to the first first installment you did about this and it was you really made some really insightful points that you know things that i've been kind of thinking about for a long time in that why it has such cultural currency and such ongoing currency because even today i try never to say like you know here's what the young people are talking about but i do know (laughs) that like you go on tiktok for example which i try not to do but if you do i mean there are 15 year olds today reading this not because somebody wanted them to or not because an adult told them to, but because it speaks to them. It resonates with them in some way. And yeah. I mean, there's a reason it's never been out of print that a 50th mm-hmm. anniversary edition just came out last year. So so I'll do that in two parts. The first is that the social part with Go Ask Alice, adults tend to respond to and be horrified by the specific events, the things that she does. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, this girl runs away from home and she has sex with men she hardly knows and she, you know, is consuming drugs and she's, you know, and it's just all of these. And I'm certainly not telling anybody that Alice is a model, you know, on which to base your life. She's taking pills like fistfuls of Jordan almonds at Easter. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not trying to downplay the seriousness of the activity she's taking part in, but the interesting thing to me is that adults fixate on, on the things she is doing. Young readers tend to fixate on the character herself. Mm. In other words, adults Mm. are like, I'm horrified by the things she's doing. And young people say, this girl breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, Mm. or this girl could be me. Yeah. That means I'm still young. Yeah. For all of the book's (laughs) fakery, it's like, you know, Beatrice at some point was obviously at some point was herself a teenage girl. And so like, there is like an unavoidable reality to just like, you know, like knowing what it's like to be a, a young woman in the world, which obviously had changed. It's been a long time since she'd been a young woman, but also like, it's like, yeah, you can't even really fake that. Like maybe that's why the teens, cause it's like, yeah, in some level there is like a real, a, a feeling of realism to just like, that's just being in this like deeply transitional sort of deeply like, I hate to use the word liminal. I overuse the word liminal. This is how you know, you'll know my work is you'll see the word liminal <laughs> appearing way too many times. But like, that's my tell that's my drinking game uh but yeah like she's in this like weird just moment of ambivalence and like strangeness and like the sort of these minor traumas of just being a young person in the world and i feel like that part there are moments of the book that do resonate in a very real way even if like the drug stuff is like so obviously fake absolutely and it's it really does capture it is kind of lightning in a bottle because it does capture the way it feels to be a teenager. Now, again, it's been a long time since I was a teenager, but I think that the evidence, you know, the proof is in the pudding. It's the reason why it continues to sell and continues to resonate. And, you know, when you're a teenager, a lot of things are true at the same time. Uh, So you are simultaneously convinced that you are going crazy and that you are the only sane person on the planet. 
mm-hmm. just this massive rush of just strange, conflicting emotions often coming at the same time. And I think that is why there's this split of young people resonating, you know, with the tone resonating with them and adults, though, fixating on the but the drugs and the and the sexing and the so forth. <laughs> right. Another right. good example, right. Right. a comparison is the book Carrie by Stephen King. Mm. But the reason why Carrie resonated with young people and with a lot of people, it's not because mm-hmm. she had telekinesis. It's because of her home life and the relationship with her peers and her mother mm-hmm. and her school. And she's sexualized, but is also repressed. And she's all of these strange things at once. Carrie and Goascalis to me are some they feel a little bit similar in that way. So in terms of the societal impact and why it was such a big hit, it came at a really propitious or a word like that propitious, I think moment in that a, the number of runaways have been increasing every year since the late fifties and not Mm. increasing by a little bit, it been doubling in some years. And by 1971, the average American runaway was a white suburban girl who was barely 15. And that was a change because it had never been that way before. Mm-hmm. And it had become, I think by 1970, I think the number of teenagers who vanished long enough to be declared missing was 400,000. Society was not prepared for that, especially not when they looked and saw like, but they're from good homes and they're from hmm. the suburbs, which of course is code for they're white. Mm-hmm. Right. right, Like that lovely squeaky from. <laughs> exactly. Yes. So there's the runaway aspect and then there's the LSD aspect because the number of users of LSD had been going up every single year. And 1970 marked, there's no way to avoid drug puns here, but it was the peak or the high watermark or whatever you want to say. In 1970, 800,000 Americans tried LSD for the very first time, which is the, you know, mm-hmm. it was the biggest number ever. And mm-hmm. it was illegal, but nothing seemed to be happening. And the Nixon White House was just bent on criminalizing drugs and not just criminalizing them, but like hella criminalizing them. I mean, you know, to the, you know, classing LSD alongside heroin. And so Richard Nixon is gearing up to launch his war on drugs, which requires whipping the American frenzy, uh, the American people into this frenzy and really getting them amped up for yet another losing war. And so go ask Alice emerges at exactly the right moment. Come on, folks, you love those. And yeah. they did. They yeah. and the American public was mm-hmm. ready to get behind that because they associated drugs with, you know, lots of things with hippies and with Charles Manson and with losing, you know, your identity, which to an American is just, you know, that strikes at the core mm-hmm. of the American ideal. And plus, mm-hmm. it's menacing, you know, the flower of American womanhood mm-hmm. and a book that came out and told you why you should be frightened and angry about those things. That was well-timed. Yeah. I mean, I feel like Sarah made this really great point in the first episode, just about how like ironic it was that LSD is like the, you know, the almost like the primarily demonized drug in the book, but also like, you know, Alice is also clearly depressed and like probably LSD would be like kind of a helpful drug for her to take. And it's just weird that there's something about like the insisting on demonizing like this drug in particular, like at the expense of almost all the it's like weird. It's like pot and LSD are like the really bad drugs. She tries heroin once and she's like, Meh, not for me, and just moves on with her life. Right. And it's just like ironic because it's like, right, LSD and pot. It's like the, like the most sort of harmless of the bunch and like the ones that like, you know, like whatever it's just so it's so interesting that that would that that's the thing that she wanted to focus on somebody one time described silence of the lambs as being perfect because i think it's like roger ebert or somebody said that it's like they made a list of all of the most common phobias and like jammed them into one movie it's like fear of the dark and fear of insects and fear of whatever and you know if you think about go ask alice i mean there's you know being uprooted and moving and losing your friends Mm. and having to go to yet another school and the fear of being pregnant and body shame and feeling torn between Mm. desire and and the shame that is sort of implanted in you Mm. there's also a couple of weird a couple of weird things that I'm tempted to, I don't know, I don't want to read too much into things, but there's that moment where you, I think you mentioned this, Carmen, where the, just like, today I had six heavenly mouthwatering delectable French fries. <laughs> there's a weird religious, almost self-denial and then indulgence, uh, maybe overindulgence aspect of that. It's this ascetic, I will deny myself every form of pleasure, so much so that these six French fries just taste like manna from heaven. Yeah. And it's a weird, almost fasting binging yeah you know so these sort of threads of all of that emotional tumult you know run Hmm. through every corner of the book yeah Hmm. okay so my last big question which like i don't know how much this you want to answer because obviously like everybody should read this book i'm so excited i am like literally gonna leave this conversation and immediately purchase this book so you know (laughs) i hope everybody does as well but my big question is 
was there an Alice or like, was there any version of Alice who existed which part of like any of this diary actually came from or was it just invented whole cloth by Beatrice? Well, Carmen, that's an interesting question you pose there. (laughs) I will say that, and I'm not trying to be coy about this Mm. when I say that, you know, when you go to see a movie and somebody, we've all had this happen, you go to see a movie and somebody says, okay, just you'd be better if you don't know anything about the movie going in. If you just don't look up, trust me when I say just don't read anything about it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Obviously, that's not the case here because there's, I mean, we're talking a lot about it and a lot of people know about not only Go Ask Alice, but also, I mean, a lot of the stuff, I mean, it's not like I discovered the name Beatrice Sparks. Obviously, a lot of this stuff has been floating around out there. Sure. You know, even before Google, it was findable. And especially now you can Google Go Ask Alice and find, you know, I mean, the copyright records and stuff have been around for a long time. I will say that initially, as we talked about earlier, in the early days of this book, certainly for the first decade, probably 90% of the coverage treated it as absolutely authentic. You know, this girl lived, this girl died, this girl left a diary. That was sort of the whole thing. Later, you know, by the time 2000, 2005 rolled around, you know, that it really split to where half the people were like, well, this is absolutely true. And the other half were like, well, this is absolutely, you know, whole cloth nonsense. I will say that neither of those assessments is entirely true. And so without Without saying too much here, I will say that there is an answer to that question. This is not going to be like one of those D.B. Cooper books I buy where on the last page, the guy's like, still don't know. Sorry. (laughs) There is an answer to this question. And at the end of the book, I lay out, you know, the backstory of what really happened. And I will say that while it is not what I expected, and I know that I'm sounding coy, even as I'm trying not to. No, this is so good. (laughs) It's not what I expected, but. But it actually does make a lot of sense. So the question is answered at the end of the book, and mm. it is not what I expected, but it it actually does all kind of fit together. Rick, I feel like you just sold so many copies of your book. That was amazing. <laughs> that was excellent. That was such a perfect Damn. answer. I am like burning with desire. Like I can't even tell you like how much I want. To. I'm so excited. I'm going to read the book immediately. Um, is it too late to have you blurb this? Hold on. Let me just. Uh... <laughs> so here's the plan. Everybody buys Unmask Alice. Money goes into publishing. Publishing hires fact checkers. Thank you. Yes. Truth <laughs> prevails. America heals. The end. <sighs> Good night. Let's all hope so. <laughs> and that's our story. We found it written on paper bags, and we've done our best to edit the grammar, but we haven't changed any of the spirit. Thank you to Miranda Zickler for amazing editing. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for amazing producing, as always. Thank you to Carmen Maria Machado for going on this weird odyssey with me. I appreciate that so much. I feel like we've been on a camping trip through <laughs> a fraudulent writer's brain, and I have enjoyed every second of it. Thank you to Rick Emerson for writing a fantastic book and coming to tell us about it. Thank you to you, the listener. See you in two weeks.